My name is Matthew. I'm the student ministries pastor here at Connection Point Church. And for the last couple weeks, we've been talking about the book of James. The book of James is a very practical letter in the New Testament. James wrote it to do this work of contextualizing the teachings of Christ, the teachings that Jesus has throughout the Gospels, and making it make sense in our day-to-day lives and the daily grind. It's very straightforward. It's a short letter, only five chapters long. And about three weeks ago, we kicked off talking about the first half of chapter one, talking about our resiliency of faith and the ability to remain faithful even amidst difficult times and trials. And then we talked about the wisdom of listening, learning to understand not only each other in community, but listening to understand God in our lives as well and letting that impact our lives. And then last week, we started off chapter two by talking about how we as Christians in a community of believers are not supposed to play the game of favorites. We're not supposed to favor some people over others because they make more money or because their lives are more stable or they're more popular. We're supposed to love each other, love our neighbor as ourselves equally, not because some people are more useful or less useful. And so today we're concluding chapter two. It's quite a bit of reading, and so I'd ask that you stick with me today. Um, Before we do that, I want to tell you a little bit about my family. Uh, I'm the youngest of three boys, so God bless my mother. Um, This is a picture of me and my brothers when we were toddlers. I'm the young one in the coverall shorts. My brother David is over my left-hand shoulder. He's two and a half years older than me. And then my brother Jonathan's over my right-hand shoulder. He's five years older than me. This is another picture of us in sequential order starting our own baseball team, I guess. But David and I, by being closest in age, played together a lot. We were competitive with each other. We tended to follow, I would follow his lead in a lot of things. And because of that, we would compete and we'd challenge each other, but he was better at make-believe than I was. And so when we were growing up, he would often try to get me to follow along with what he was doing. One time I remember he offered to pay me $30 um, and I would pull him around like a horse while he was on rollerblades. And I never saw that money, still to this day. But he also wanted to play this game with me called Office. My dad would wake up every morning, Monday through Friday, put on a suit and tie, take his briefcase and go to the office. And we wanted to be like our dad and we didn't know what he did, but we knew he went to the office. And so we would put on our wedding or funeral suits We'd go downstairs, find the closest thing to a briefcase that a teen can have or a kid can have, and my mom would pour us um, Diet Coke in a mug to resemble black coffee, and we'd go downstairs and we'd set up tables to be cubicles, and we'd shuffle papers for like an hour. Occasionally, we'd break off and have meetings, and our meetings were literally just drinking our coffee and chatting, which, come to find out, is what most meetings are. So we did understand some things. But we played office because we wanted to be like our dad. We didn't have the slightest clue of what he did for a living. We didn't know what managerial work at an office was like. We didn't even know where his office was. We just knew how he dressed and how he acted on his way to work. And we filled in the blanks. Kids do that all the time. Kids are always scrutinizing the adults in their lives, making assumptions about what is acceptable or unacceptable based on how adults in their lives act. They're deciding what is Uh, appropriate or inappropriate based on what their parents do or what other prominent adults in their lives do. They 
uh, create boundaries or don't create boundaries based on the boundaries that are present in their adult lives, based on the people that they surround themselves with. I'll tell you, kids even formulate um, political ideas from a young age based on what their parents talk about. When I was six, I had strong opinions about the Bush administration. I didn't know anything about the Bush administration, but my mom did. The truth is one of the areas we don't talk a lot about is that children create an idea of what it means to be a believer in Christ, to have faith that's active and present in their life based on what they see their parents doing, what they see prominent adults in their lives doing. And the truth is if they see their parents or they see a neighbor or they see a Sunday school teacher prioritizing reading scripture, coming to church, praying, journaling, they start to realize implicitly that something that's important for our Christian walk is to pray, read your Bible and, and journal. But for better or for worse, kids will create an idea of what faith is based on what the adults in their lives do. It happens all the time. James talks a lot about that. He talks about the responsibility of our actions, and he talks about the weight of what it means to live out our faith. One of the things I love about the book of James is it's extremely straightforward. In other passages in the New Testament and the Old Testament, you'll oftentimes have to do a lot of legwork to understand what's being said because there's a big cultural barrier. We're not in the first century Jerusalem, right? We don't understand the political landscape. We don't understand all the contextual landscape either. And so you have to do a lot of legwork with commentaries and reading outside sources. One of the things with James, though, is he's pretty straightforward. When he doesn't want you to show favoritism, guess what he says? Stop showing favoritism. And then he explains a little bit, but like he says it in the first sentence. And similarly, in this passage, he just tells you exactly what he's trying to get you to understand within the first verse. And so I want to follow James' uh, lead in this. And I'm just going to tell you exactly what I'm talking about today. Because sometimes I feel like after 25, 35, 40 minutes of a sermon, you can forget what we were talking about. And so this is the big idea, right, Fert? Faith means belief in practice. Faith was meant to change us, right? So when James talks about faith, he wasn't just talking about our head knowledge. He was talking about our beliefs, what we believe about Christ put into practice in our life. Sometimes you can read the book of James and start thinking, James doesn't really care what we think. He just cares about how we live. That's not true. James doesn't dismiss or diminish people's beliefs. He understands how important our beliefs are, but he also understands that our beliefs aren't meant to only stay within our head. They're supposed to change our lives. What we believe about Christ should, in fact, change the way we live, right? So faith means belief in practice. So let's look at James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. It says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But some of you will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. What good is it to talk about God, but not live as if our lives are changed by that? For James, faith was about an encounter with God, leaving a mark on our life so that we are indelibly stamped with Christ-likeness. That our entire spiritual journey is about taking steps closer to being like Christ. But the problem was, a lot of people were fully content just talking about why Jesus is important without ever actually living like he is. Notice what he says in verse 18 and 19. He says, Some of you will say you have faith and I have deeds. Well, then show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there's one God good. Even the demons believe that. Mere head knowledge about God or a mere theological understanding about Christ is not enough. It's important. Our beliefs matter. Because what we think about Christ ultimately determines the trajectory of our lives, but it was meant to have a physical embodiment in our life. He says, you will see his faith through his deeds, not because he does these actions or does these deeds because he's trying to earn God's love or earn eternal security, or not even because he thinks if he does enough good, it will outweigh all the sin and bad stuff in his life. That's not what James is saying. What he is saying is that our actions and our lifestyle pay tribute to or are evidence and witness to the spiritual journey that we're on. It pays tribute to the spiritual journey and the work that Christ is doing in our lives. Sometimes we'll talk about a sacrament and we'll say that it's an outward sign of an inward grace, right? So people get baptized and they do that in front of a community, but it's ultimately pointing to something deeper than just the act of baptism. It's pointing to what Christ is doing in their life, right? It's speaking about their story and what God has meant in their life. Similarly, our actions and our lifestyle are like a barometer of our belief it pays witness to what Christ is doing in us. For James, faith was not just about talking about God, it was about living like Christ. It was about being so marked and changed that we can't help but live different. Not just on Sundays, but Monday through Saturday as well. So two things he highlights about faith. The first, faith seeks to be love and compassion in action. If you notice in verse 15 and 17, James says this, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister was without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I had a professor at Olivet who used to say that sometimes to meet a spiritual need, you first need to meet a physical need. Sometimes we're trying to satiate spiritual hunger when what we really need to start with is satiating physical hunger, right? Sometimes people are more receptive to the spiritual changes in their life when they're not worried about where their next meal is coming from. The truth of what James is getting to is that faith meant love and compassion in action in people's life, making a real-world impact. 
The word compassion, it's one of my favorite words. It comes from the Latin that means to suffer with, to share someone's burden, to step into what they're going through and walking alongside them. Like when someone twists their ankle in a race and you'll see people will stop and put their arm around them and carry them through the finish line. That's compassion in action. And our faith is meant to have a real-world impact that doesn't turn a blind eye and look at the hunger and suffering of people nearby and say, I'll just be praying for you. Like, that's great. Be praying for people. But how are we being a change agent along with that? Jesus tells this interesting story in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Uh, A leader or expert in the law or a religious teacher, as some uh, translations will say, comes to Jesus and asks this question, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? And they have this back and forth. This is what it says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn to take care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. It's a really interesting story. Because the man approaches Jesus, both trying to test him, but also with a pious question. How do I inherit eternal life? What do I need to do to be a good Christian? And Jesus responds by telling him a story. And the audience hearing this would have heard about this half-dead man beaten, left for dead on the side of the road. And Jesus says, a priest walks by, and all of the people would have been like, oh, great, this guy's going to be okay, because priests are good guys. Right? In that day and age, the religious leaders, the priests, the Levites, they were the good guys. They were the people who were going to step in and try to make this a better situation and scenario. But both the priest and the Levite step to the other side of the road. They don't want to deal with the problem. And scholars have hundreds of reasons and hypotheses of why they wouldn't have helped the man. You know, in that day and age, if you would have touched someone who was dying or was going to die, you would have been made unclean and had to stay outside the community. So there are reasons why, probably perfectly justifiable reasons. Maybe they were late for something and they desperately needed to be there. How many times do we pass by needs that we know exist because we're late? Regularly? And then Jesus says, but a Samaritan walks by. And at this point, all of the audience would have thought, oh man, the guy's a goner. Because Jews and Samaritans don't get along. We're not going to get into all of the cultural history of why Jews and Samaritans don't get along. That's probably, we'll let that be Aaron's job. But what I will tell you is that Jews' relationships to, to Samaritans was hostile at best. 
Jews treated Samaritans as less than and almost in a racial prejudice sort of way, what we would consider in a modern context. And so when they hear a Samaritan walks by, it's the last person you'd expect to help. And he stops and he cares for the man. He meets his immediate need and then even goes above and beyond and says, I'll even reimburse this in for whatever they go and do for this person, right? And then he asks the guy, he says, well, who do you think was the neighbor? And the guy can't even say Samaritan. He just says, the one who showed mercy. And he tells the man, go and do likewise. The beauty of the story is two people, the pious, good Christian people, the people who would have been very religious at that day and age, didn't meet the need. Instead, it was the Samaritan who stepped in, saw a need, didn't turn a blind eye, but stepped in and showed love and compassion in a tangible way. And what does Jesus tell us? Go and do likewise. Jesus teaches a lot in the Gospels, but he only commands three things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then in the Gospel of John, he says, a new command I give to you, love one another. Because people will know that you're my disciples by how well you love. Faith was not just about what we think about God. That's important. It was about putting that belief into practice and letting it change who we are and being shaped not only by the love that we've been shown, but then showing that love to other people. Because the love that Jesus is talking about is not just your purely affectionate brotherly love or even romantic love or sexual love. It was love in the sense of agape. Agape is a Greek word. It means unconditional, no strings attached kind of love. It's the type of love that God shows to us. And that's what we're called to show to other people. Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way, that agape love is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. Agape is the love of God operating in the human heart. At this level, we love men not because we like them, nor because their ways appeal to us, nor even because they possess some type of divine spark. We love every man because God loves every man. Not just some, everyone. We are called to be the hands and feet of Christ, showing love in tangible ways, suffering with people. Faith wasn't about just talking about Jesus. It was about living like Jesus. The second aspect is that faith means trusting God and holding nothing back. If you notice, there were two names that came up in James chapter 2 that you might recognize. They're from the Old Testament, Abraham and Rahab. And both of these people would have been considered important faith figures. Abraham was kind of the father of Judaism and then subsequently Christianity. And Rahab is even listed amongst Jesus' own lineage. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1 in his genealogy, only about five women are named. Rahab's one of them. These are important people, almost mythological and legends to the Jewish folks. And so when James talks about them, the audience would have known to, to quiet down and listen. Because these are important Mount Rushmore-like faith figures. And he says this in verse 20 and, or 21 and 22 and then 25 and 26. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And then in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. 
Now, this is an aspect of the story that if you don't know what's going on in the Old Testament, you might miss. Abraham got to a very old age, well past when people had children, and having children was a big deal because your children would take care of you in your older age, and then beyond that, your family history would continue on only because you had kids, specifically boys. And so God approaches Abraham and Sarah, his wife, in the tail end of their life. They've been barren their whole marriage. And he makes a promise that they'll have a child. And that through that child, their entire lineage, the people of Israel, the people of God, will come from their family. And Abraham thinks it's a joke. But sure enough, God held up his promise, and they had a baby Isaac. And Isaac quickly became Abraham's pride and joy, his greatest achievement, the best thing that happened. And then God approaches him and he says, do you trust me enough to give me Isaac? Do you trust me enough to, let, to lay Isaac on an altar, to sacrifice Isaac to me? Do you trust me that much? And at a point where his faith went from just merely belief, merely thinking good things about God, now rubber's hitting the road and he has to trust God in a very tangible way, where he has to trust God with his family. Rahab was in a situation where the people of Israel wanted to conquer the city of Jericho. Rahab lived in Jericho. She was a prostitute in that area. And the local government got wind of the fact that the people of Israel were sending spies to the city. And so the plan was that they were going to capture the spies, torture, and then probably kill them. And so for fear for their life, they go to Rahab's house and they say, Rahab, will you hide us? Now, at this point, she's at a weird junction in time where if she decides to hide these people, the same fate of the spies will befall her. I mean, let's be honest, you're now a co-conspirator. She'll be tortured and killed as well. And Rahab, through an amazing act of faith, trusts God for her own safety. She takes care of the spies and even sends them in a different direction, misleading the government, which helps the people of Israel to continue on in their story through the book of Joshua. The reason why I think it's interesting that James uses these two people is because both Rahab and Abraham were not content only talking about their faith. They were called to live it out. It required a deep, radical trust and commitment not only to the ideas of who God is, but a trust that God's ways are good. It was a trust over their family and over their safety. And my question for us today is, do you trust God? Do you trust God with your family, with your finances, with your reputation or your safety, with your future plans and aspirations and your dreams? Because the truth is, faith was not meant to just be merely an intellectual thought. It wasn't supposed to be a theological back and forth. None of those things are bad. They're really good and important, but it wasn't supposed to stay there. It was supposed to transition and graduate into a trust and commitment to God that doesn't hold anything back. Because the reality is we approach faith more often than not saying, God, I want to trust you, but I'm going to hold on to this aspect. I'll trust you with everything else, but my family, I'll worry about them. Or my safety, God, I'll, I'll worry about that. Or we have all these big pipe dreams for reality and we're like, God, you can have everything, but I'm going to take care of that. And the truth is we were called to full trust and full submission, holding nothing back. So for us in this room, well, what does this look like? For some of you, statistically speaking, some of you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus yet. And if that's you and you're here on a Sunday morning, first off, 
Good for you. One comedian said it's way easier not to do things than to do things. It's 100% easier not to do things. And so you being here on a Sunday morning in and of itself is a huge feat, and we're, we're glad for that. But what I'd encourage you to do is keep investigating. Keep asking questions. Somewhere in history, we got this very false idea that questions are a bad thing, especially in religion and faith, because we started to believe that asking questions meant we didn't have enough faith or that we were just ignorant. And the truth is, if you look at the Bible, specifically like the Old Testament with like King David or Moses or Abraham, they're constantly asking questions. The disciples are constantly asking questions because questions are important for our faith development. So keep asking questions. Start investigating. Read your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'll give you one. Talk to Pastor Holly, Pastor Sarah, or myself, and we'll even point you in the right direction. Keep investigating. But for the rest of us who have either grown up in the church or been around the church for a bit or made a decision to follow Jesus, here's what I would say to you. What are you holding back? Where do you need to trust God more in your life? Because we all need to trust God somewhere. There's all... There's at least one area in all of our lives where we're holding back something. And I'll tell you, one area that I constantly need to remind myself to trust God is that God loves me. Um, It is very easy for me to think that I have to work for everything and that I need to earn my spot with God. That God only loves me as much as I am useful and do for him. And to remind myself that God loves me because I am, just because of who I am, is very hard for me to believe sometimes. That's a huge point of trust. Trusting God with my family is really difficult for me sometimes because I know I can take care of them. Being able to trust God and trust his plans for my family is huge. So where do you need to trust God? The second thing I would say is where can you show love tangibly in your life? When you get home today, one of the things I'd ask you to do is to write down on your notes app on your phone or get out a piece of paper and write down four different categories, home, work, community, and world. And underneath each of those areas, I would ask that you leave a little space blank so you can write one to two ways that you can tangibly love and serve and suffer with and be compassionate to those areas. So how can you love at home with your family and friends? How can you serve them? What are the small ways or the big ways that you can show your love tangibly? What about at work or at school in the fall? How can you be a a non-anxious presence, a presence of Christ in those spaces so that people don't even need to hear you say you're a Christian, they know something's different just by the way that you live your lives. What about in your neighborhood or Muskegon County or Michigan? How can you love there? What ways can you get involved? And this is the area that we often neglect. Where can you get involved in the world? Sometimes we can become a little myopic and insular only about America. Um, Because that's where we live, right? There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But what I'm asking you to do is think globally because we weren't called only to care and love about America. We were called to care and love for all nations. God didn't send Jesus just to America. God didn't send Jesus just to die for American sins. He sent Jesus to die for the world. For God so loved the world. So how do we get involved globally? What are the ways that we can show our love tangibly? Before Jesus was born, the people of Israel were doing a bang-up job. Right? They, were following Jesus, uh, they were following God in all of the practical ways that people assumed you were supposed to. They would go to the synagogue and they'd worship. And they would sacrifice and they would 
pray and they would even do all of their scripture memorization, but what they were doing a really bad job of was loving people well. There was an incongruence with what they said they cared about and what they said they valued versus how they lived. And so God sent the prophet Micah. It's an Old Testament book called Micah. He sends a prophet Micah to share this message with them. It comes in Micah 6, 6 through 8. It says this. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? No, oh people. The Lord has told you what is good and this is what he requires of you. Do what is right. Love mercy and walk humbly with your God. God doesn't require exclusively just thinking the right things. Our beliefs matter. But what he also expects is for us to be changed and transformed by what we believe. To not just think good thoughts about Jesus, not just love the teachings, not just come to church and worry about our Sunday morning routine, but to let our faith change Monday through Sunday. To let it change all of our interactions, not just some of them. But I know for us, one of the things that can often get in the way is we can look at the brokenness of the world and have no clue where to start. Because there are so many problems. There are so many problems just in Michigan, let alone when we start thinking globally. And so I love what one pastor said, Kyle Mayer Chop wrote in his book about discipleship in a changing climate. He said this, that silence in the face of injustice speaks volumes, but so does action. Only one question remains, what do you want your life to speak? The Jewish Talmud offers a powerful answer in its commentary on Micah 6.8. It states, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now, love mercy now, and walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the, the, the weight of all of the problems that we get this empathy fatigue. We don't know where to start and we feel paralysis by analysis, so they say. And what the Old Testament, what the New Testament are telling us to do is don't worry about fixing everything. Worry about fixing one thing. Don't worry about trying to solve all the problems, but try to help one problem. Because belief is faith and practice. It's our love and compassion and action, and it's seeking to trust and hold nothing back from our relationship with God, being fully committed. So what will your life speak about your faith? Will it be that you really loved coming to church and talking about Jesus, or you really liked reading your Bible, all of which are very good things, right? Or will it be, will it be that we lived out our faith in every interaction at work, at home, and in our community? May we be people who choose to live like Christ every single day that we're alive. Let's pray. God, I pray that you help us to continue to seek love, to continue to be people that try to live out the agape love that you've shown to us and be ambassadors of that to other people. I pray that we're people who choose to suffer with and not turn a blind eye to the plight of other people, but instead enter in and try to, to lend a helping hand. I pray that we are trusting and obedient and submissive to the call on our lives, that we trust you and hold nothing back. And God, every day that we're alive, I pray that we take steps closer to being like you, closer to Christ-likeness. Amen.